On Palm Sunday, this Palm Sunday, April 2nd, 2023, we've now arrived in our sermon series, Learning to Trust God, where we've been talking about the subject of prayer, studying the Lord's Prayer, to the final line where it says, deliver us from evil. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, enemy-occupied territory is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. And you might say, landed in disguise. And is calling all of us to take part in the great campaign of sabotage. And there's no question about Jesus' first coming to a virgin born in a stable that it was in disguise. There's no question about his triumphal entry, entering into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey where people are throwing their cloaks and their palm branches out in front of him, that he came in disguise. And as you heard uh, Pastor Sam read earlier, there were people who were trying to get the disciples to stop the children and others from praising God during his triumphal entry. There was that kind of opposition. And the opposition to Jesus throughout his life and ministry was overwhelming, especially in the last week of his life. And it continues to this day. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible is very clear on this. We are at war. There is a vicious battle raging all around us between the kingdom of God and Satan and his adversaries. And every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Satan's name by definition means adversary, the enemy. Jesus called him in John chapter 8 verse 44 that he said he was a liar and a murderer. In John chapter 10 verse 10, Jesus says that he's a thief and the thief comes to kill and destroy and steal. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life, life to the full. So since there's no such thing as Switzerland in this cosmic battle, there's no such thing as neutral ground in the universe, each one of us must pick a side. And there's no such thing in this war either as draft dodgers who skip the country or conscientious objectors who just go to prison instead of engaging in this battle. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are called, as Bruce Cockburn says, to kick against the darkness. And there's no better way to do this than to put your hands together in prayer. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he said, pray this way, deliver us from evil. And the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, we must all practice Violence. Now, we think of violence in a, a bad term, but violence, in the use of his word, is strength of emotion. We must all practice strength of emotion and remember that he who prays is fighting against the devil and the flesh. He said Satan is opposed to the church, and the best thing that we can do is we can put our hands together and pray. Now, if we're going to pray the way Jesus teaches us against the forces of evil, there's some things we need to know. Number one, we need to know who our real enemy is. First Peter chapter five, verse eight says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I dare say that most of us here, and I think most of us listening online, are all aware of Satan and his demons, the fallen angels, who are waging war against God, waging war against God's church, waging war against God's children. And I think we're aware somewhat of the cosmic battle that's going on right now between light and darkness. 
Yet I also have to tell you the truth. Because we live in a Western culture where for the most part we have replaced the conversation of biblical cosmology of good versus evil into the realms now of sociology and psychology and even anthropology. Every sin, every human action is now related to some societal or clinical cause. It's because we live in a free society where people have legal access to guns that a tragedy happened like this week happened in Tennessee where six people were brutally murdered as a transgendered person did this at a Presbyterian Christian school. Now shouldn't we possibly be talking about hatred toward God or hatred toward God's children or toward the things of God? Uh, how about someone having evil intentions in their heart? You know, three of the largest mass tragedies in our nation's history did not involve the use of guns or weapons in that sense. Terrorists flying airplanes loaded with jet fuel into the World Trade Centers and the Pentagon. Uh, another involved an explosion outside the Mariah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, killing 168 people with diesel fuel and fertilizer. The third was a disgruntled school board member in the early part of the 20th century uh, who blew up a school with dynamite. So did these tragedies happen because we have airplanes and jet fuel? Because of fertilizer and diesel fuel? Because we have dynamite? Or was it plain and simple, pure evil? Our news cycles are filled daily with unspeakable horrors. Rapes, tortures, murders, war crimes, robberies, human trafficking, drug-induced losses, and human beings' unending capacity to hate, hurt, and abuse one another. And get this, people instinctively seem to know that all these things are evil. Yet we live in a culture right now where you can't call it what it is. Andrew Delbasco, in his book, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil, writes this. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources we have for coping with it. He goes on to say, we have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We discuss pathology, and we do not use moral terminology. But Dobasco says, as the 20th century spilled into the 21st century, it has gotten harder and harder for us to say that the Holocaust or that ethnic cleansing, or serial killing, killings, or soft target shootings, killings like just happened this last week, are just bad psychological and sociological adjustments. Folks, there is something that we need to grasp from history and from Scripture. You know, in World War II, in Germany, among pastors and churches that did not capitulate to Hitler and to the Nazis, the Lord's Prayer deliver us from evil had profound meaning. A meaning that I strongly fear is lost right now in the good old U.S. of A. Brothers and sisters in Christ, people are more open right now to spiritual things than they have been for a long time in the West because the secular world has no answer 
to the issue of good versus evil. And the problem is that all the cults and all the Eastern religions and various different spiritual gurus out there, they're all stepping into the void. Well, many Christians just simply seem to be content to have their ticket punched to glory, and they seem to have no real plans of wanting to invite anybody else to come along with them, just content to kind of coast along, not really devoting themselves to the spiritual battle called prayer, just happy to go along and ride this wave out. But Jesus, on the other hand, took a completely different approach when he was on this earth. Uh, Jesus launched his ministry with 40 intensive days of spiritual warfare in the wilderness where he locked horns directly with Satan. And when his ministry got underway, when he sent out the 72, what did he say in Luke chapter 10, verse 18? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Even when one thinks about the Lord's prayer, the very last request in the list there is, deliver us from evil. Jesus Bailey basically wraps up his teaching on prayer with this cosmic declaration. And this same Jesus is the one who predicted at the Last Supper that the one who dips the bread in the cup is the one who's going to betray me. And of course, that was Judas. And it tells us in the scriptures that at that very moment, Satan came in and filled Judas. And then it tells us in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, this is what he said. This is what Jesus said, Simon, Simon. Satan is asked to sift all of you as we... Yes, that was the disciples there, but all of you is all of you. Satan's asked permission to do this, to sift all of us. But Jesus said, I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Does this sound like someone to you who understands who his enemy was and is? We must know who our enemy is. And number two, it means that we must know what forces we are up against. In Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, it spells it out for us very clearly. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, all organizations and institutions eventually develop a culture of their own that's greater than the totality of their individual parts and these cultures can be either positive or negative secular universities for example educate many students in in various fields of study in various careers but they're also quite well known for turning many young people away from God computer and phone companies have been remarkable innovators in our culture but they've also made a lot of money directing people away from godly living. Law enforcement agencies have done remarkable jobs for much of history in upholding the rule of law in our nation, but they also can become institutionally patriarchal, racist, sexist, and even unjust. And even when someone from an oppressed group is put in charge, they still have trouble many times changing. And what we have to understand is that there are these outside forces, that Satan is alive and well, and there are these spiritual forces that are at work in this world trying to shape all kinds of organizations and institutions. You see, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, Spiritual forces in heavenly realms. You know, the prophet Daniel understood this in the Old Testament 
One day while he was living in exile under the Persian Empire, Daniel received a gut-wrenching revelation from God regarding a great impending war. I read this for you from Daniel 10, verses 1 through 3. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. It was a me- its message w- was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until three weeks were over. What did Daniel do? He fasted. He prayed. You know, no fine foods, no wine, no meat, no lotions. And many of us really could take a lesson here from Daniel. Many of us should be doing this from time to time as well. Maybe we need to fast from television or from social media or maybe from food or some other form of self-denial for the purpose of concentrating uh, on prayer in this battle that we are engaged in. And, of course, in this amazing vision, he has this vision of this, this brightly dressed man. You know, this is a theophany. This is a God appearing that happens to him. And we pick it up in verses 12 and 13 of Daniel chapter 10. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. That's the archangel Michael that's being talked about. And this particular encounter here provides us incredible insight into the battle that's going on out there in the heavenly realms. And also the time lapse that takes place there. Did you notice that? The 21 days? That's instructional to us. That our prayers may require us to persevere and to not give up. And there's also references here to particular angelic powers, to princes and different geographical regions and cultural entities, what I believe the Apostle Paul was referring to in Ephesians 6 as principalities. The Bible teaches over and over again that there are powers at work in this world that are affecting organizations. They are affecting institutions and cultures as well as people and individuals. And as followers of Jesus... We need to exercise discernment to stand up against those uh, powers in prayer. In Ephesians 6, it referenced here many times how we need to stand. In verse 10, it says, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. In verse 13, it says, therefore, put on the full of armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And once you've done everything to stand, verse 14 says, stand firm. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the greatest act of spiritual warfare, of exercising spiritual authority, is when you personally lead somebody to faith in Jesus Christ. There are no greater victories than that on earth. But guess what? Guess what brings the most opposition in this world? Is whenever we're working to that end and the gospel is being advanced. 
You know, I've worked with a couple uh, this last winter uh, from our area, and I've gotten contact with them through my years of coaching, and Pastor Nathan actually uh, had contact with them through coaching. So we ended up developing a relationship, and they're on my blessed prayer list. And we've made some incredible progress. In fact, the last time together, I shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus with them. And we were supposed to get together a number of other times for some follow-up sessions. And it has been over a month, and that has not happened. First time, I had to cancel because I had the worst vomiting in my entire life that I've ever, uh, ever had. The second time, they had to cancel because of a snowstorm. The third time, there was a misunderstanding of each other's schedules. The fourth time, uh, dates got mixed up where I showed up and they couldn't come at that time, but I thought they could come at that time. And do you understand that things like that are part of the spiritual battle that we're in? Stanley Hauerwas says, what you are up against is not simply your personal faults, your foibles, your petty temptations, your peccadillos, which is your simple, insignificant offenses. You are up against principalities and powers. Evil is large. It's cosmic. It's organized. It's pervasive. And it's real. And these powers generally do not appear as evil or coercive. They often masquerade as freedoms that we have been graciously given or necessities that we just cannot live without. We need to know what we're up against. And, you know, I'd be remiss today if I did not take a few moments and uh, address the cultural context of the letter to the Ephesians. Because Ephesus was a city that was riddled with idolatry, weird cultic and cultural sexual practices, and many Greek and Roman gods and all of their occultic practices. And Paul, in writing to these young, vulnerable believers, many of whom had just come out of this hedonism and this idolatry themselves, Paul wanted them to know what they were and who they were in Christ and what, they had, been what had been given to them and what authority they had in the church. And allow me to stop just for a moment and mention that Paul doesn't really use the word Christian in his writing. He doesn't refer to people as Christians. But he does speak a lot of being in Christ. In fact, he uses that term, in Christ, 164 times in his letters. And I had planned to read Ephesians 1, 15 to 23 for you right now, and then chapter 2, verse 6, but I don't quite have time to do all of that. But I'll read just for you chapter 2 and verse 6. And it says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We've been raised with Christ so that when we pray, we're no longer just pleading for mercy in the midst of this messed up world. We're exercising authority from above as one seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And in prayer, we are learning to rule and reign with Christ. The one who it says in chapter 1, verse 22, that God placed all things under his feet. Raymond Edmond, a son of Swedish immigrants from Chicago, was dying of typhus fever as a missionary, 25 years of age, in 1925 in the jungles of Ecuador. His doctor happened to be a specialist in tropical medicine, and he advised Raymond's wife to begin preparing for his funeral. Other missionaries actually began making his coffin, while his wife Edith busied herself dyeing her wedding dress black, a dress that she had worn not that long before on their wedding day. But on that very same day, some 3,000 miles north of Ecuador, 
in Albatoro, or Attleboro, Massachusetts, Raymond's uncle Joe became deeply, inexplicably troubled. He knew nothing of the nephew's predicament, but he just couldn't shake the sense that Raymond was in some kind of grave danger. At that moment, Joe was actually attending a conference, and he felt so stirred that he persuaded all 200 Christian delegates there to join him in praying that Raymond would be delivered from evil. Even though no one knew the nature of the evil they were fighting. There was no communication like there is nowadays, especially for someone who's out in the jungle. And the conference rose up and prayed so fervently that many years later, those delegates could recall the intensity to which they prayed. And consumed with a sense of imminent danger, they fasted from eating lunch that day. And they continued interceding until the middle of the afternoon at which point a great peace settled upon them and the sense of danger subsided. Somehow they knew that their prayers had been heard, that Raymond Edmund, far away in Ecuador, had been delivered from evil. Meanwhile, Raymond had fallen unconscious and in a comatose state, became aware of a loving presence, slowly entering the room, rising from the ground, to the level of his bed, eventually filling the building. I experienced, he said, a sweet sense of the love of God in Christ such that I'd never known in all the years of my life. And it is sufficient to say that I have no fear of dying. He felt himself ascending with great joy until a quiet voice told him to return. And to the amazement of those preparing his funeral, Raymond Edmund regained consciousness and was completely healed. In later life, he would go on to become the president of Wheaton Bible College from 1941 to 1965. And in his early years as the president of that college, he mentored a young man known as Billy Graham, who had become the most notable evangelist the world has ever known. And Billy Graham said at Raymond Edmonds' funeral in 1967, we will never know the full evaluation of his life and ministry until we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. But still I have to say that he was the most unforgettable Christian I have ever met. Raymond Edmonds' life, and Billy Graham's for that matter, as well as all the other lives of people that were influenced by these two men, for God's glory, are a testament to the urgency and the power of prayer, specifically the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. God, our Father, I thank you again for this privilege that we've had to study together in prayer your teaching of the Lord's Prayer. And, oh God, I pray that we would take to heart seriously the battle that we are in and recognize what we are up against and who the real enemy is in all of this. 
and that there is a spiritual battle going on out there. And God, that we need to devote ourselves to praying specifically that, oh God, you would deliver us from evil. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.